<laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to the X Factor Files podcast. I'm Daryl. I'm Philip. And we have a special guest. Who's our guest? Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Flinkman. Um, some of you may know me as X-Man 214 from the AOL keyword Marvel message boards in the mid-90s. Uh, others may know me as the co-host of the first season of Powers of X-Men podcast, aka Generations of X. Yeah, and uh, your podcast was the first one that I listened to consistently relating to X-Men and all that. So it was so fun. You and um, Dayspring started that up in the midst of the pandemic, and it was so good to be able just to hear people geek out about something and not have to think about the terrible things happening in the world. Yeah, I mean, we both basically started that podcast uh, in the middle of separate mental breakdowns. I think everybody was kind of having a mental breakdown, their own personal mental breakdown at that point. Um, And it really was, you know, just so much fun and and a light and all of that, that craziness. Um, You know, I wish I wish that, uh, you know, I'd stuck with it a little a little bit longer. But unfortunately, you know, uh, life life came back at me fast once I went back to once I went back to work, I was I was back to work. But Dayspring has done just such an awesome job. Uh, carrying the torch for 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 what we started, and uh, it's always fun to to hear from people, you know, that that it was something they they really enjoyed because I really enjoyed doing it. Yeah, and it frees you up to be a guest on podcasts now, which it's a whole lot less pressure when you're just guesting once in a blue moon than doing something every week. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, completely uninitiated. Uh, Dayspring, of course, is used to doing live events and having an audience and doing all of all of these things, whereas I was just a total noob, noob to all of that. So uh, it was <laughs> a lot of pressure. But... What was that? That's where I'm at. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's exciting and and full, like lots of pressure to, to, to be the new person at it. But um, it's definitely a lot of fun and I hope you, you, you know, are getting as much enjoyment out of it, uh, as I did. We are, especially with such an enjoyable series because we're covering issue four of X Factor Investigations. And I think this is a perfect series for those people who have never heard of these characters to jump in and get to know them. It's how I first got to know Monet. And then I went back to Generation X and read more about her and, how she developed. It's a, it's a great entry point for so many things. Oh, it's, it's, it's a great entry point for, for all of these characters. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to like follow all of these, these B and C sort of list characters uh, for the entirety of the nineties. And then of course, you know, sort of around the Morrison era uh, is when all those books kind of got canceled. And these, these characters were kind of like to the wind for, for, you know, half a decade or so. So um, I thought it was really, you know, it, it, it was a really great sort of coming together of, of all of these forgotten mutants. And um, I, it's one of my favorites. I, I don't think anyone who's ever heard me talk about X-Men or like seen my, my list of most wanted Marvel legends would be surprised to learn uh, that a book like this is, is really right up my alley. And you are the reason, let's not forget, that we got Richter as a Marvel legend. All credit to you for us getting 90s Richter with the fringe and everything. The fringe, the boots, the hair, that Fabio hair. Oh, the hair. It's it's long. Yeah, he doesn't have it in this book. He's he's cut it, you know, Richter's hair is it's 
is probably uh, one of my least favorite things uh, about about this series. Um, <laughs> he definitely usually has better hair. Um, but yeah, no, I I am legit. Like when I tell you, I am honored to forever be associated with the announcement <laughs> of that spectacular action figure. Uh, it, it it was just one of the coolest things. I podcasting. I legit almost shit myself when they were like. Shout out to Flinkman. I'm like, what? Like, the thing is, is, I like watch all. I almost always watch those those live, those Hasbro live streams. Like as they're happening, I wasn't able to that day, and I had like a bunch of people send me like the clip, and I wasn't able to watch it for a couple hours. I'm like, oh, cool. They announced Richter, and then they fi- like I finally watched it, and I heard my name. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> it was just so cool. Those guys are great. They're they, you know, Ryan especially. Uh, does a really good rioting of from the Hasbro team. Uh, he does a really good job of like keeping up with with the fandom and like who's asking for what. Um, and they're they're so good at, at making people feel included and like shouting out folks in, in those live streams. It was it's a really cool thing. Who's your favorite BRC lister from this cast or like overall? Maybe overall. Last week we were talking about. Um, like who on the mantle of punks is is C, B, or A, so. I mean, it breaks my heart to, to classify this, this character as B or, or C-list um, because she's worthy of, of a, a spot among the best of the best. But, you know, my, my homegirl Dazzler is by far and away my favorite of those like second tier sort of X-Men characters. And and like I said, it breaks my heart to put her there because she shouldn't be there. She should be an A-lister. Um, she was, has been around for, for my God, almost, you know, 40 years now, if not 40 years. Um, and it's just kind of a shame that she has never found her way onto a book like, like X-Factor, which successfully like integrates and sort of rehabilitates those those like B and C level characters. I don't even know. I everyone seems to love Dazzler, and I know nothing about her outside of like something to do with sound. And she's a pop star, and she can rock the roller skates. And Demanda Martini and Michelle Waffle Altero do amazing cosplays. That's right. I mean, all my knowledge. There is well, I you know without getting into specifics, there is definitely. Um, a major dazzler plot point uh in in your future i'll leave it i'll leave it vague as to like when where how that's Um, fun yeah there's it was a pretty there's a pretty major development involving her um but yeah she the you know she just she doesn't show up in in the big books and if you are only familiar with like the major x-men stories and the movies and the crossover you know kind of stuff and animated series um, she just never really got her due in, in any of that. Um, you know, I certainly could could list off uh, a resource list of Dazzler <laughs> uh, essential reading for you, but I would say, um, and I recently recommended it to, to Daryl, um, I would say probably the most oddball, most fun choice for, for Dazzler reading would be the Dazzler, the movie original graphic novel from like the mid eighties. It's just so bonkers. <laughs> I, it's like 
everything you love about like an 80s primetime soap opera mixed with everything you love about like mid 80s sort of, uh, you know, bad in air quotes, superhero comics. Mm. Okay. Super high camp? Super high camp. I mean, not not to give too much away, but it literally the opening shot is Dazzler doing like jazzercise. So (laughs) that's awesome. That's that's like all you need to know. And um, I mean, Dazzler, she's gotten her due from Hasbro. We've gotten two Dazzler action figures, which I think is fantastic. Obviously, they pay attention to highlighting some of the characters that can be overlooked in current comics, especially. Um, But who from X-Factor Investigations do you think should be a Marvel legend? Because I don't think we're going to get a whole wave, like an AOA wave for X-Factor Investigations, but I really feel that there's a demand out there for this title. There's a love for it. People remember it just like they sort of cherish AOA. I think there are grounds for Hasbro to go back and mine some of these characters for an action figure. Yeah, definitely. And I think the most obvious choice, and, and again, if, if anyone has has heard uh, you know, my podcasting past before, uh, this won't be a surprise. Um, Monet, I think, is way overdue for, for an action figure. You know, she was supposed to have one, I believe, way back in the 90s and like the third, the canceled third series of, of Generation X action figures. Um, she's, you know, currently rocking a costume that she debuted in the pages of this comic. So you could get a t- kind of a kind of a two for one there. You could get a modern and an X Factor uh, investigations. Um, I think she's the most likely. She is also my top choice. Um, I think eventually we're we're going to get an X Factor Investigations uh, Madrox figure. I it's you know I'm really glad that we started with the '90s X Factor uh, version of Madrox because now we we have basically have all of that that core team. Um, so that's really cool. But I think if we're going to get anyone else or get another version of Madrox. I think, you know, a Hasbro Pulse exclusive army building X-Factor Investigations Madrox just seems like a really obvious choice for that. Cause they already, they already do that kind of thing with like the scrolls and the, you know, the Hydra troopers. Um, Yeah. I I think he's a good choice and and he's laying around somewhere. They have him. He was part of like a Toy Fair fan vote uh, when Hasbro first got the license. I believe it was uh, Age of Apocalypse Sunfire won that actual vote. But Madrox in his X-Factor Investigations outfit was one of those figures. So there is somewhere in Hasbro the figure exists. And I think they will eventually it'll find its way out. Outside of that, I'm not really sure. Um, I don't know that any of these costumes are necessarily the most toyetic, mm-hmm. um, at least this early in the series. Um, okay. When y'all advance later into the series, we maybe can and you have 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 seen uh, some of the later costumes. Yeah, um, I do love Monet's cape. I feel like we've talked about that. But mm-hmm. yeah, like Richter's like court page hair. <laughs> and frumpiness is not working wonders for him. I don't know if Rain is doing wonders either. Like it's very period appropriate, but in terms of an action figure, it doesn't have the same sort of pizzazz. 
Right. Right. I, I do. I do wish that they would do a Excalibur line with like the other world costumes for like Richter and oh, Captain the Britain. current looks for yeah. Excalibur because they're they're almost done with classic Excalibur. Really, yeah. we only need Rachel um, to complete sort of the core of classic Excalibur. But they did do the House of X powers of ten wave, yeah. so they're yeah. open to doing that. Um, and Excalibur, I think, was probably one of the more successful um, sellers from uh, the last and they, period. The looks are so good. And yeah. like as unrealistic as Richter was in the 90s, because I went back to find like a random issue that had him and Shatterstar in it. Yeah. And he was like super buff <laughs> and like oh, yeah. ridiculous hair. Just like that is the same guy as in this. <laughs> So he went from like ridiculously buff to super emo and court pagey. And then like, he has a great look in Excalibur. So I feel like if there's a Richter look, then that Excalibur one is the one. Oh, I I, I totally agree. And I mean, Excalibur by by Teeny Howard during the, the recent Dawn of X, uh, it definitely wasn't my favorite overall by by any means, but like, the one thing I'm consistently defending about it is its is its treatment of, of Richter, um, and the look is is definitely a, a part of that. I like that he's sort of adopted because you know if you when he first debuted in the '80s, he kind of had this weird like mullety mohawk flock of seagulls kind of hair that <laughs> that then transitioned into the long flowing that then transitioned into like you said this kind of like emo page like haircut um and they've sort of taken like he's always sort of looked like a product of like when like the different eras he's been in like he more than most of the x characters his looks have reflected like the fashions sort of mm. or the, the the looks of the time and i what i love about his look in in excalibur is it recalls kind of like the best of those kind of um he has like a little like it's he's kind of a cross between his punk look of of the 80s and his like pretty boy looks of the 90s and i think uh he would make a fine a fine action figure <laughs> <laughs> all right so what uh... We're going to transport ourselves to April 2006. Oh, um, <laughs> it was a time. Um, and we're going to do the pop culture pop-up and review things that were happening. Now, you did miss something from last month. We uh, covered the Oscars from um, 2006. And part of the In Memoriam segment was Barbara Belgetta's. Oh, Right. Oh gosh, Miss Ellie. Yeah. Um, you and I are both huge Dallas fans. And oh. I it we're recording this in the beginning of April. And I think it was four years ago or five years ago, four years ago, I was down in Dallas for the 40th anniversary reunion that they had there. So yeah. um, I'm sure you've been to South Fork and it. Literally, we used to go. I, I I live in in the DFW, Dallas, Fort Worth area for the for the uninitiated. Um, <laughs> and like literally, we used to go to South Fork on like school field trips in elementary school. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, it's. Uh, a, I mean, it's an active ranch. 
So like you can sort of educate and be like, here are some cows, but like just run kids. So it's not quite a living history farm because it's Dallas, but it's close. I mean, listen, we were definitely walking through the South Fork mansion, getting taught about JR and Lucy <laughs> and all of the characters. What a so dream. It was a dream. Honestly, I, you know. But not like season know. eight. Um, it was an actual like good dream and not one involving Angelica Nero. Yeah, absolutely not. No. So are you like in oh which Alba song is it? The day before you came when she's like, there's not, I think, a single episode of Dallas that I haven't seen. Is that also you? That is definitely me. (laughs) (laughs) So and it's such a commitment to watch Dallas. Like I my my husband, he my husband Kenny, he keeps like, oh, do you like because I think it's on Amazon Prime and it keeps getting like in our suggested and he's like we should watch dallas and i look at him and i'm like this is not a casual thing i need to understand this is like 14 seasons plus two seasons of a reboot uh, from the 80s when episodes were still like up to 55 minutes long yeah oh wow like you need to understand that this is a commitment and if we start this we're finishing and (laughs) i wonder why we haven't started yeah and um I've only cut little bits of Dynasty, so that's as close as I've come to that. Uh, Dallas is greater than Dynasty. <laughs> I, I think that is like a, a gay hot take, but I'm gonna mm. I'm gonna stand by that. <laughs> I would too. I love both, but um, Dallas was my first nighttime yeah. soap love. So um, it's like I'm it's, learning these things about you all over again. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like I if if you want to like compare it to to comics, Dallas is kind of like the original X-Men movies and Dynasty is like the MCU. They just sort of, they took that formula that 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 they started in, oh. in Dallas or X-Men and they like really ramped it up and sort of perfected the formula a little bit more on Dynasty if mm. that if that makes sense. Okay. And like not Judy Collins. Collins. Joan Collins. Joan Collins. Joan Collins. Right. That's Very what I was people. gonna say. They they took like the the idea of these Dallas divas and just like zoop, like cranked it. Yeah, they did. Um, so focusing on April, there there are a few things that happened in April 2006. So Rihanna actually released an album. Um she <laughs> Everyone shouting at her, you're late, and her going, no shit these days could be about so many things, including dropping her next album, which will never come. But oh. um, she actually released A Girl Like Me, which was her big debut. Back Ponda in Replay, right? Yes, Ponda Replay. Listen, the summer of 2006 was, was my first summer uh, of... 21 and when i say that song was all over the gay club that song was all over the gay club on the charts for this specific month was daniel powder's bad day it hit number one. Oh, that song that song oh. that's a that's a collective kind of though that song from all of us that's like it's like the music of Grey's Anatomy. It's like, it oh. is, yes. Okay, but I do like Snow Patrol. <laughs> but that, yeah, that song is just a, a bit much. Yeah, Bad Day, we, I I wasn't aware of Daniel Powder before this. I'm not aware of him after this. I just know that they used her. it in probably a really sappy scene in Grey's, like Catherine Heigl was crying in a wedding dress or something, and they probably played it. 
and um it it was i can that's an image like i can see very clearly yeah and just that brief description and then she thought she could have a movie career (laughs) i now i i have to defend her slightly here okay i'm now i am no katherine heigl fan but i do think with the benefit of hindsight she was kind of right about all of the things we said at the time she put her foot in her mouth about. I don't know. I don't know. I'm no stan, but uh, I have mm. I have reevaluated my stance. On, yeah. On the um, and I think that in terms of a business move, it was a smart move for her to try to capitalize on her television success. And I mean, Grey's Anatomy is still going on now. Okay. And has anyone really watched Grey's since... 2009 i knew people in grad school who did oh yeah that was a little but they were also younger than me oh like i have no interest in gray's anatomy and i don't think that what's her face ellen pompeo even has interest in gray's anatomy anymore what was that flink i said ellen pompeo has an interest in those baller checks that abc is giving her Absolutely. I think ABC is just keeping that show afloat as a tentpole right now. Mm-hmm. Um, not in a dissimilar way from how they just kept Agents of Shields, or Agents oh, of Agents of Shield, not Shields, um, going for years and years after it really lost steam because they knew they could pump it for publicity yep. and um just do things with it business-wise rather than fan-wise. Absolutely. They just want to keep that Shondaland production on the air now that they have to compete with her on Netflix. Yeah. And um, a really big thing that uh, has been in the news recently, and I exposed Philip to a portion of this. So it was Hugh Hefner's 80th birthday. And yeah. Was he still with Holly, Kendra, and Bridget at that point? Yes, they actually filmed his 80th birthday happening in April 2006 to kick off the season two premiere of Girls Next Door. It was available on Amazon Prime for a hot second. And And he turned it on one night and I was just like, what did I do to deserve this? This is cruel and unusual. Because I just couldn't, I can't stand the the artificialness of it and the like I'm going to do myself up and to curate this image out into this world of all these negative traits about me so that I can be on this show but I think in the mid-2000s like everyone was super into like the playboy image so this is how the playboy really reinvigorated itself like they slumped hard in the early 2000s like their business was not doing well because the internet was around so people could just get porn for free. So, and maybe it's just my very sheltered background of like, we don't look at Playboy things. So, well, like you, wouldn't, whole, you like, wouldn't even want to look at Playboy things right now. I mean, well, it's naked women. Yeah, so. I'm like, I don't think any of us no. outside of the, I, I own one issue of Playboy and it's the one that has uh, Ginger Spice. Oh, uh, no. Her nudie pics, her nudie pics in it, because you know every every good every good gay loves ginger spice. Yeah, so there was like no appeal in it for me. I was just like, what what did I do wrong to deserve being exposed to this? So I just like rolled over. He tried to like pat my shoulder, and I was like, don't touch me. <laughs> I find that reaction to be perfectly valid. <laughs> uh, however, 
I was super, super into it to the extent, like I have gone through uh, like, my God, dozens of like DVD purges, DVD and Blu-ray purges in my life at this point. Um, but I do still have like this giant CD book of, of caseless DVDs. And in there, I, I have not been able to part with like, I think I have the first like two seasons of Girls Next Door uh, <laughs> on DVD. And for whatever reason, I don't know if I'll ever watch them, but I can't, I can't part with them. It's like a very, I can, I, I could never like articulate why um, because now, like, if somebody told me, you know, they were into keeping up with the Kardashians or like any of these other like e reality shows that we've had in the interim that have just like dominated pop culture, it was just kind of new and fun at the time. It was, and like I can't explain why it was so appealing, but like I will always give those early seasons of Girls Next Door a, a, a pass just mm-hmm. because. Of, for nostalgia they were they were just fun mindless stupid things and it's yeah. hard if you weren't part of it at the time I think it's really hard to explain <laughs> why it's appealing in any way whatsoever and uh, did you ever read Holly Madison's book I didn't but I, I, I the only thing I've done with yeah, well, I haven't done anything with Holly Madison but the only thing I've experienced of Holly Madison post uh, girls next door is I saw her in peep show in, oh, <laughs> in Las Vegas. She actually writes about that in her book, which by the way, hard to find. They don't sell it new anymore. The used copies are going for like over list price, uh, which is crazy for something that was pop culture related that they pumped out like five years ago. And right. Dayspring actually that was the first project when he worked at Harper that they were producing when he joined the team. So he's tangentially aware of it in a a business sense, but um, it's just crazy. And the things that she says in that book, um, I mean, Hugh Hefner, super problematic. They just did the whole A&E two night documentary on him this past winter and everything. What a scuzzball, but I haven't um, seen it. I haven't seen it. Me neither. But like even the previews, you know, it's going to be bad. And I read a couple articles. Um, Puffin. What did you do, Puffin? I Puffin is his nickname. Um, Puffin. And, and making an appearance at that 80th birthday party was, of course, the queen, Paris Hilton. Oh, my she, God. I, literally. I was like, the queen. <laughs> I'm like, what's Liz doing there? Liz Should have let you finish your thought. Liz is just like a puppet they're rolling out every five months at this point. But but back in 2006, she could have been at the mansion. Who she knows? Was, she was spry. She was hiding from advanced reviews of the Queen starring Helen Mirren. So <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it doesn't get much more. 2006 than Paris Hilton at the Playboy Mansion. No, it really doesn't. And that's another thing that's weird. Like the simple life, like the episode that you showed me. <laughs> Don't come <laughs> for the simple life. <laughs> no, it's just like she and Nicole Richie are like clearly care for each other, clearly are smart people, but curated this image to to sell a brand. Oh, that... and it sold. They were smart. It worked. They... It, it worked. worked. But by covering up all like the smart awesomeness and 
pasting it over with vapid shallowness is well that's how you draw them in that's how you got everyone in and then all of a sudden they're following you on social media and you can sell them anything daryl is very into the fact that paris hilton follows him on twitter she does oh you've got that that twitter cred i i have to say i i kind of like on the subject of of paris and nicole secretly being smart i think at least for me i I think Nicole always seemed like, I don't think she was playing so much a character as Paris was. I, I feel like her kind of savvy always was kind of apparent uh, from day one. I think it was, she was like savvy to fit that kind of Paris BFF model that she knew would get her attention and then immediately sort of like transition that into like actual businesses kind of. Mm. I was in for her. Stand. Me and Dayspring, we used to, like, honest to God, most of 2006 was probably spent standing X Factor and Nicole Richie with Dayspring. <laughs> like, literally. So it, it, you just provide a wonderful segue because you're such a pro. Um, X Factor. First of all, tell us about how you were exposed to the series. Did you read the Madrox miniseries? And then from issue one, you read this, was there buzz? And then you went and got back issues. What was that journey like? So my journey, I, I, I've been a comic fan. Like I've been an X-Men fan since like 1990. I, um, I bought like a stack of, of comics for like a dollar, X-Men comics for a dollar, like a local garage sale and animated series followed shortly after that. I was a fan, had subscriptions to books in the 90s. And then like middle school and high school came around and I got a little bit more into music and, and still love the characters, but wasn't reading the books. Um, my journey back to like monthly comics uh, started in like late 2003, uh, early 2004, like tail end of the Morrison era. Era, mm-hmm. Morrison era. Um, and so I was, I was back to reading monthly comics um, when X Factor came out in 2005. And, um, you know, it spun out of, of House of M, which was like a big, you know, you know reshuffling of the decks for, for the X books. Um, and I was at that point, um, they spun off a bunch of new ones, um, reinvigorated a bunch of others. And at that point I was buying like all of the monthly X books. So I was on to X Factor from like, from day one. Um, somehow I managed to miss the Madrox series. Of course, I, I have gone back um, and, and read it once I was a, a big fan of, you know, of X Factor investigations. Um, but I, yeah, no, I was there from, from issue one. I actually have all of the single issues for the series buried deep in the caverns of my nerd closet. I was really hoping to, to um, bust those out to, you know, feel the comics in my hand and, and enjoy reading them old school um, to prepare for this with you guys. But once I realized that those were at the bottom back corner of the closet and that everything else would have to come out to get to them, um, no, it was Marvel Unlimited. That, that's how it worked for me. Yeah, we were messaging back and forth and I have the exact same situation. It's always the stupid short box that you want most that is in the back corner and it will, yes. you. it's legit excavating at that point. For sure. Like, because the way my closet is right now, I don't have 
you know, okay, I guess it's been like 18 months since I moved. So I guess I can't say I just moved, but I still haven't found like a nice, solid, sturdy bookcase for all of these heavy, like omnibus trade paperbacks. Uh, so they're just, not only do I have like six long boxes stacked on top of each other, but stacked on top of those long boxes are all of like my books. So like yeah. it literally would have taken me <laughs> hours to and a thrown out back probably at my age yeah. uh, to get all of that to get all that out there but needless to say yes i have been a fan since the beginning i was a fan for the whole run um and it is it, it's one of my one of my all-time favorites for sure and uh, shelving recommendation cube shelving so like ikea's calyx or target yeah. sells its own brand i use those and they work wonderfully for omnibuses Okay. Because they're the shelves are only like 12 and a half to 13 inches long. So it, it doesn't give a whole lot of space for them to start bending and everything. Yeah. So that's, that's my problem, of course, is the bending. Yep. Um, oh, I forgot. We have a sponsored giveaway starting with this episode as well. Um, I know. So the folks over at the Flippy Pillow are uh, sponsoring a giveaway of one of their products, which I use to read things like omnibuses because they suck to put on your lap. Like you have to figure out a way to actually prop them up. Yeah. And uh, the Flippy works great for that because you can just sort of lean it in there. It's at an angle you can sit or lay in bed and read an omnibus without it like crushing your nads or um, like falling over on your face or you having to hunch over it in your lamp yeah. lap in an uncomfortable position. Yeah, so, I was hunched for the new X-Men. Yeah, the new X-Men omnibus. So um, we're going to have details on our Instagram page on how folks can participate in that giveaway. But I really like it because it was invented by a woman and um, women engineers are fantastic. I'm happy to boost their business and I'm so happy that they're partnering with us for a giveaway as well. So um, I recommend that to you, Flinkman, because they're available yeah. on their website or on Amazon. You can get the Flippy. And there are knockoffs um, who basically stole the design of it and created them. Yeah. Um, Which we do not support them. No. So uh, go search out the Flippy pillow on Amazon or Google it and people can get them. Uh, I mean, you literally just sold me on it because reading an omnibus is a bitch and i currently my comic book my comic book club we're slowly but surely working our way through grant morrison's doom patrol omnibus which is literally a like a murder weapon it is so <laughs> i know i have that one and i need to start it um but yeah it is like 1400 pages where it's... you could drop it on someone like if you're on the second floor and like leaning over and drop it like you could they don't stand a chance someone. Yeah. So I should just use it as a as a weight for a workout or something. You could like Definitely. load up a reusable shopping bag with three omnibuses and <laughs> and that's a great weight training exercise. Um, but they even have flippies with so it's a triangle shape and there's a core. So there's a, a hollow core with a drawstring end, so you can throw like snacks, snacks or a phone or anything in there so it's near at hand without having to like surround yourself with a bunch of junk yeah, so ready to go yeah um so now that we've uh, seen your journey to x factor and you've been reading it from the beginning let's crack into issue four and um see where we're opening up and it's still monet trying to have a really good time she 
she just wants to relax and take it easy for the night. And she's floating throughout X-Factor investigations. I do love how she floats. Like when Richter was on that motorcycle and she was just flying on her, like, tum-tum up, like super relaxed as he was on his motorcycle going. And then she just floats around. And like all the depowered mutants around them are like, hey, no fair, don't rub it in. Yeah. <laughs> what a and bitch. She, and she, That's so annoying. <laughs> She's high-spirited and vivacious. And <laughs> she has floated into the kitchen and the phone is ringing and she's right next to it and she still doesn't want to answer it, which I can hard relate to. Um, but in 2006, it's what you did. Like, Oh no, I still wouldn't answer the phone in 2006. <laughs> I didn't have a cell phone until 2007. Oh, so. I'm talking like even in uh, the dorms, if my room phone rang, I'd let it roll to the answering machine. <laughs> I'm like, right? Who is answering a landline, let alone let alone a corded landline in the year 2006? <laughs> um, but I, I couldn't figure out the angles at first. And then I realized that she was floating. And I'm like, good for her. And it, it's Madrox on the phone being like, get down here right now because we're with Gloria. Gloria. <laughs> and... Um, she and uh, matters called the number. Number. Uh, anyway, Listen, I to, I'm gonna I'm gonna give y'all props for the for the Laura Branigan reference just now. Like, good, thank you. That was aces. I feel like it's a staple of show tune Sundays or like at the gay bars when they have music videos going. Like somehow there's always Gloria in the background when I get there. As there should be. R. R. I. P. Laura Branigan. R. I. P. Oh. Um. Speaking of RIP, <laughs> um, <laughs> Gloria is still in jail being questioned and they can't really get much out of her in the interrogation room because Siren and Madrox are there trying to figure out, did you actually shoot your sister? What went on? And it's a total blank. So they need Monet to come and use her powers. I do also love that Monet answered the phone. Hello, Nuthouse. It's very much like... I think it's desk set with Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. And she answers the phone, City Morgue, in that like mid-Atlantic accent that she has. Mm. <laughs> and she, Monet is like, no, really, there's something going on here. And Max was like, I don't care. Get down here. <laughs> Whatever it is, have Layla take care of it. <laughs> so Monet hangs up the phone. She's like, I got to go. Jamie said, you should take care of this body. And she's and like so eager. Yeah. She's like, okay, dokie. Layla Miller. And um, before we started reading this series, I would, uh, Layla would come up in conversation or in a game or something like that. And Phil would be like, who's Layla Miller? And I'm like, oh, she knows things. And that is the only explanation I would give. And I would be so confused. And now I really appreciate that that's her running gig. I'm Layla oh, yeah. Miller and I know stuff. Yep. I mean, that is at this point, that is her power. That is what she does. That is. And I well, are we are, we're going to are we going to discuss House of M or do you want me to? Discuss? We will after this. Okay. So we're okay. going to get through the issues. I will then. save my Layla Miller thoughts. Cool. Because I need all the context because I know very little about it, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah. I, it, you don't. There's there's not a lot to know right now. So. Awesome. Um. Monet, on her way there, flies by and sees Rain and Strong Guy having a confrontation with the police about, just leave this to us. It is our problem to take care of. 
and the police are not really buying into that they they're like okay we can put a muzzle on rain um and things like that how dare they yeah and strong guy gives fake names he's like my code name is can crush you with a glance man and this is once disemboweled a fellow just to watch him die girl that that page that splash page is is really well done probably one of the best of this of this arc i i think it just captures like rain's facial expression in this is insane she is ready to fuck some shit up she is and i would support that so we got to the precinct and monet has arrived filing her nails she never has time for any of this shit does she she doesn't and Maddox is like what do you mean there was a riot and why didn't you stop and help and Monet is like well my boss told me to get here so I love these sort of aside moments with Maddox where he's just like oh and like clutching the bridge of his nose of like of all the people he has assembled this is what he gets and he sends Siren out like all right Monet is here we can hold it down Teresa, can you go and help them out with the crowd and the police? Yes. Which she's happy to do because she does not want to be around Monet. The bitchy exchange is so good. Yeah. When you're right, you're right. Um, Mr. Tripp Jr. is there lurking. With a soul patch, which is very 2006. Very. I, quite frankly, may have had one myself. Uh, but you were much better than anyone working for Singularity Investigations. Absolutely. Let's let, you know, a soul patch might be a little slimy, but at least I wasn't pairing it with greasy hair and a black and red suit. Yep. And it seems like he almost wants Siren. Is this part of the ploy to trap her? Or does he actually want her on his side? That's a that's a good question brought up by this exchange. Especially because in the previous issue, our aged, not Merlin, had that vision of the future where like she gets captured and shot when she tries to confront Singularity Investigations. So if she's still running around, maybe Junior's like, oh, I wonder what happened. If I try to schmooze, maybe I'll get more intel. And schmooze he does, I feel. Oh, he's a schmoozing man. You can yeah. Um, Monet creates a mind link with Gloria, and is uh, it's really intense. And Jamie's like, maybe I should pull her off for herself. And all she does is sock him, which creates a dupe. Um, what do we think of this dupe that's produced? Oh, hold on. let me read. Let me read it. Let me read it. Uh, oh yeah, so definitely. I like the idea that has been seeded throughout this, this, this series of each dupe sort of representing a different aspect of Madrox's personality. And this one is definitely like the toxic masculinity version of Madrox because he is, you know, immediately jumping out, you know, is that all you got? You think you can take me? You know, all of that, that, that bravado that uh, an early 2000s straight male uh, would certainly, you know, want, rep, want representing them in a fight. I mean, he even does reference Fight Club, which is a scene. Yeah. A vibe. 
I feel that this dupe would have loved that headstrong song. Um <laughs> and probably would have like rage cranked it in a Jeep or without the doors on of or something not. like that. Oh like, yeah. Like he would go riding the dunes. Yeah. <laughs> um the police are a little suspicious because they hear another male voice in the room where there's only supposed to be one and come to investigate and they're really getting nowhere with Gloria even even with the mind connection yeah and we have um because Monet is like I'm just going to handle it like I don't need a team I don't need backup it's like I'll just sort it. Mm. I mean, she's a one woman team. She's the muscle. She's the mental powers. Like you, yeah. in most situations, you're not going to need more than Monet. When, oh, someone had this awesome idea for like a X-Men team where it's all natural, like forces of nature sort of thing, like Storm, Iceman, Magma, Rockslide, and Sunfire, I think. And I love it, but then you have to get like the team balance of like mental powers plus physical powers plus natural for natural powers. And she brings a lot to the table. Like she can fill multiple categories. Yeah, she she can. She's like, you know, in in Generation X, they they literally described her powers as as being perfection. And uh, I mean, if that's not, you know, perfection isn't a force of nature, then I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what is. She would fit right in on that team. And I actually like, you know, Daryl, I know you said that you were recently rereading some of the, you know, some of Generation X. Um, I got, you read, you read, the, did you read all of it? Like start to finish I, or? In spurts over the past year, yes. I'm near the end right now. Okay. I think like the scene where she is like in Gloria's head and like kind of un like subconsciously like punches Madrox really gives me vibes of like those early kind of issues where when she used her mental powers, she kind of went into like a catatonic, yeah. like unconscious kind of state. I don't know, like just the way her eyes are rolled back and she like just sort of like does that motion. It gave me those those kind of vibes, which anything that makes me recall, especially the early days of Generation X, uh, I'm I'm all for. Yeah. And but just not Generation X, the movie, which we watched for the first time last weekend with some really not good fruit wine. Oh, yeah. And it that is I, I want Philip to read Generation X, especially from the beginning. Um, but you have to separate the TV movie from Generation X itself because the TV movie is not anything like... It certainly doesn't reflect what actually is going on in the comics or even really the character dynamics. But as its own, like, separate thing, I fucking love that movie and defend <laughs> it to the day I die. And uh, we talked about that, so uh, um, you'll have to listen to our prior episode. Um, oh. right before this what it sees either us covering episode two or three or issue two or three mm-hmm. of x-factor investigations where we chat about our reactions and i think it very much is if you watched it when it came out versus watching it for no. the first time in 2022 totally different worlds um well you have to understand at the time that was it that was yeah. what we had that was our live action marvel movie of of the you know the 90s basically yeah. um 
you know, we didn't get a superhero team movie out of Marvel for another, you know, several years after mm-hmm. that movie was made. So I, and I was also 10 years old. So, you know, prime, prime audience. Yeah. I, 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 I one thing I will, I will give it is Monet. Monet is well done and fairly accurate to who she is in the comics. Yeah. Back, back in this issue. So I have a question about this movie star. Um, who do you think he most resembles? Because he's talking about, oh, you know, I have a gig back on the left coast and I need to get out there. Um, that seems like a Mel Gibson thing to say. I see. I was going to ask you the same question. Like, usually I'm pretty good at picking up, like, if somebody in a comic is a cipher for somebody in real life but i i don't know who he's supposed to sort of remind us of there's just so many toxic male actors who think their shit don't stink that he could you know fit that archetype of any one of them really yeah uh it it's hard because there were so many big egos around this time too and it seems like he's a fairly mid-level. Like, I wouldn't say he's Tom Cruise level back then, but I'd say he's probably maybe more of a rising movie star who thinks that he's hot shit. I'd say he's like TV actor. Yeah. He's like on the OC or something. Ooh. Oh. Yeah, I can see that. So he is pushing back at... Junior. I, is this junior oh no there's no a that, this is, oh there's a goatee not just a soul patch yeah this is oh. a, this is a trip senior i guess that's how you know that based on the facial hair yeah and he's like i gotta like just she's in jail nothing else can happen i'm going to take this job i need to catch my private plane and yes. then like trip senior makes a really awful fat joke fuck that yeah, he guy. does which I really wanted to interpret as just like a reference to Bertha from the Great Lakes Avengers. And yeah, it does get called out in the letters page on the next issue, though. Oh, good. So we go back to Mutant Town where the confrontation is happening. Siren is trying her new, newly defined power of sweet talking people, and it's not working. So she just screams at them and blasts everything down the block. Just leave us alone. Mutants take care of Mutant Town. And I'm not even going to try to read what is in Rain's Thought Bubbles because I cannot do a Scottish accent to save my life. No, there, but there's no faith in Begora this time. So <laughs> Faith in Begora, I, come on, that was amazing. But it was. I, definitely something you know i kind of said it with with madrox but something i really appreciate that peter david is doing in this series is he's taking these characters who have again they're b and c level characters uh and he's really just diving right into developing them like diving right into madrox and his powers being a manifestation of all of like his different personality traits and siren you know that like pulsing thing that she can do 
Yes, that's it's new. Like I don't recall that, you know, it's been a while since I've read 90s X-Force, which of course is where Siren has the bulk of her appearances before this. Um, I don't recall it ever happening there. So I'm pretty sure it's either brand new here or he's developing it much more than anybody had previously. So he's, it, it, I, I, it's just very appealing to me how clear it is that Peter David wants to develop these characters past what they have historically been and give them new and kind of thoughtful applications of their, of their powers. It's just something that really strike, struck me reading these first four issues, preparing for this, like, oh, he hit the ground a little bit faster than I remember him. And it's, I feel really good character development, which yeah. I love in all the things. And so being able to have folks sort of explore these new abilities or like work out for themselves, the mechanisms, like she has to be very calm and she may not have been at that moment. Um, so she just went for the full blast instead. And I think it's fun. And like even Jamie's self-exploration about like, what does this mean? Can I trust a dupe that comes out of me? Yeah. All that internal conflict I think is so, so good. So, so good. And I mean, listen, if you love all this, the interpersonal conflict and, and things happening here, just you wait, because there's like, honestly, it's, it's like kind of wild to me how much foreshadowing exists in, in just like the first four issues I, I, I read for this, like, aside from just setting up like Damien Tripp and, and Singularity, who, of course, you know, this isn't you you I'm sure you can guess this isn't the last you 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 see of them um but there's like some not. really like overt hints at like things to come for their Guido and Siren you know Madrox you know things that won't happen for like a long long time down the road that you absolutely would not pick up here if you didn't hadn't already read those and it's just for me, it's been a while since I've read this and it was just knowing what happens. It's a lot of fun to see what sort of long game he was really playing here. Yeah, oh, I felt that way about The Wheel of Time after I reread it, re -read it after I finished it. And then you go back and you're just like, oh, that makes so much more sense now. And yeah. uh, you, you could tell that Peter David he was assured in his position at Marvel, like he knew I am sticking with this title for its entire run. Like Marvel must have said, yep, it's you, do it. You did a great job with X Factor previously and everything else. Like they had confidence in him where they just handed him this and said, this is yours, do it. And honestly, I I, I don't know even if it's so much as, as Marvel having confidence in him as him maybe even just having confidence in himself because he was somewhat unceremoniously taken off of the 90s X Factor um, when he had set up a lot of things that that kind of never got touched on again. And I kind of think, oh, just from my perspective, what he's doing here is, is and you're right, Marvel had to have confidence in him to, to even get this approved, finance this, you know, whatever. But I feel like there is like this sort of incredible confidence in himself where he's like, okay, my shit got cut short last time. I'm going to do like throw so much at this, this time that either you have to keep me around or none of this is going to make any real sense. 
And I think that was, you know, kind of a bold move for, for him to make considering kind of how things turned out for him uh, the first time. And I, I, I really appreciate it. I think that's something that um, some of the X books, you know, over the years and currently, they, they kind of lacked that, they kind of lacked that bold, let's try something because everyone is so nervous about, you know, Marvel's very cancel happy. So it's like, mm-hmm. am I going to make it past uh-huh. issue six? You know, we've got to play it kind of safe and build things kind of slow rather than really throwing everything at the kitchen sink at it from, from the get-go. And it's something that I really admire about him in this series. It's bold in very subtle ways. Yeah. So I think our last major event happening before we get into sort of the conclusion of the issue is our movie star Jack being on his private plane and we see Monet float up and her eyes go different. So, you know, she's using her powers. Yeah, she's just hanging outside the window sort of like Siren was when she was getting the... um... Tyrone was getting stuff by creeping outside the window. Rain was creeping outside the window before. Like I'm sensing a theme. <laughs> um, creeping. Yeah. But she creates the image of the murdered woman in the guise of the um, flight attendant. And so sort of confronts Jack in that way and gets him to confess. And like, I thought that was fun and well done. Yeah. And we learned that Jack has some, um, has some kinks, um, some very dangerous kinks, and that's how uh, the the shooting happened. And I think the detail in the art, if as we're looking at these pages, it's so good the vision that Monet is creating that there's even like the smoking wound still yeah. on her face, and the the gore and like the not quite eyeball in the panel below, like. It's well done. And this this sets Jack off to just fly off the handle. I mean, he is admitting left and right that I I will kill you again. And that yeah. really sort of sews up this case. And so when Monet says that she can handle it, she handles it. Yeah. Monet can handle anything. Let's be real. That. Um, and Monet has a moment that when she was doing all this stuff in people's minds, she really empathizes with the victim and she breaks down and she, (laughs) and she's like, you tell anyone about this, I rip you in half. So Jamie in his thought bubbles are like, I really don't know how to deal with women. And Monet is having a very out-of-character moment where she's not business-like, like she's giving into her emotions. Yeah. Sort of the hidden depth. And like Monet has like a really complicated like family history herself. So like I can I can understand why the idea of these two sisters who actually like love and care about each other being torn apart, you know, by a terrible man in a way like this could could really affect her given, you know, the dynamic she has with her her own siblings without giving too much Generation X craziness away because you should read it, Philip. You absolutely should. Oh, my, my list is getting longer. <laughs> <laughs> it, with when you Once you start reading X-Men comics, I swear to God, the list only ever gets longer. 
Yeah, which is why I felt like I never could start. I know I've mentioned this in general before, but like you read something, you're like, oh, what's the context for this? And you have to go back. And then what's the context for that? You have to go back again. And there's just so much out there. So um, I recommend just real quick, I recommend just to get like the core basics of like the foundation that all of the X-Men comics are are built off of. Um, they did a really great series. Marvel released a really great series a couple of years back by Ed Piscor. Uh, who did Hip Hop Family Tree, which is one of my all-time favorite non-superhero comics that chronicled the, the rise of hip hop in the late 70s and you know the 80s. Um, he did that sort of same thing with X-Men. It's there's three volumes of con- like super condensed, like 30 years of X-Men history across just like three volumes written as like, not as if it was on the fly, as if there was, it's called X-Men Grand Design as Mm -hmm. if there was a grand plan for, you know, the most iconic era of X-Men stories. It sort of streamlines it. It's told, it's really hard to describe if you're not already familiar with who Ed Piscor is, but it's very succinct. It sums up all of the major characters, major plot points, major story arcs. Um, That's good. It's, I would say it's, you know, the 60s, 70s and 80s X-Men comics summed up in maybe like 600 pages versus like 600,000. Um, highly, highly recommended for somebody who wants to, you know, sort of understand what the ground level need to know about this world and these characters is. And then off of that, you can read specific things and at least, you know, know concepts, characters and environment. Awesome. Side question. Does Monet seem, is she giving off some Emma Frost vibes in this issue? Definitely. She's, you know, Monet is shaped. Emma Frost is one of the people who shaped and trained uh, Monet in Generation X. And Oh, that makes so much sense then. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, to the to the extent that a lot of people don't like Monet because they think she is a cheap copy of Emma Frost. And I think that that is misunderstanding the character personally <laughs> but <laughs> but yes all that to say like if you pick up emma frost vibes from Monet, oh, right. that is that's you're probably supposed to a little bit awesome we see layla miller did take care of the body she sent it by private messenger over to singularity um it, a genius move thousand dollar bill for that private messenger but she she did what she needed to do it had to be chilled and it was a very large box yes that's a premium it is what a what a like shady shisty move for this child character she's like okay i'll gladly not only will i gladly like dispose of the body i'll take the time to put it on ice and have it curry curry it over to our to our enemies like that's She's kind of, she's got a little bit of a twisted side to her, doesn't she? She does. I like it. And the night ends up, so um, the events of this issue and last issue took place all in one night. And we get Siren and Richter sort of reflecting basically like, boy, what a night. This was a lot. And Siren is reflecting on her alcoholism and... Richter's like, well, how do you cope with it? And she's like, eating. I know a great breakfast place that opens up early. Want to go? And he's like, no, I'm okay. Girl, after my own heart, though. 
Yeah. Um, Lucy Spoon breakfasts are the best. They are. I'm actually having one later. Like, that's my lunch plans is to mm. have, like, the greasiest breakfast possible. I'm excited. And we close with Teresa going off to have her greasy spoon breakfast. And she gets shot with a dart and then beat with a club. It's brutal. And the art is brutal. It's like the silhouette of the guy in the suit and the club. And as he's wailing it up, there's blood that comes off of it. Like, I was so taken aback by this. I w- it was unexpected, very dark. Like, very concerned for Teresa. And, like, the creepiest part of it is the the speech bubble of musical notes as he's walking away. He's just, like, whistling a happy tune after he's just beat the shit out, uh, out of, like, one of the best characters in this book. And yeah. what a thing to do when you are beating down a character whose power set is based on some type of music or your voice. Yeah. And then when she can't, and then he does, and ugh. And uh, we end with the letters page where um, the thing that stood out most to me is that Peter David said they they sold out of issues one and two. And yeah. there was such a demand for them that they sold out. And he makes the argument, hey, why don't you talk to where you get your comic books from and basically get this on your pull list so Marvel can see that there's tons of demand out there they need to print more which is actually fairly ironic because the this was a right around the time that I started a pull list before I was just kind of picking things up as as they came Um, but like I mentioned earlier post decimation post house of m when when every mutant book when a new a bunch of you know new books launched and things got refreshed that was when I actually started my my first ever uh, pull list because I wanted to make sure that I didn't miss out on on my monthly goodness. But uh, something that jumped out for me on this letter page is a debate uh, that we still have to to, to this day, which is uh, the last letter uh, from Sam Wilcox regarding Monet's skin tone um, and 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 you know what it should be. Um, you know, it's a very sensitive, sensitive issue. Uh, she's consistently colored, you know, light skin, dark skin, light skin, dark skin. Um, and I, it, it, this is the point um, in her history, you know, where, where she starts to consistently be portrayed um, with the, the more, you know, darkened skin. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a big issue just recently, again, with the launch of the most recent volume of, or the only volume of, of X-Corp. Um, the preview art for that came out. And once again, you know, Monet mysteriously was no longer a woman of color. Uh, and the internet made uh, a stink about that as they rightfully should. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it got color corrected. So um, it's just interesting to sort of be reminded of, of how long um, that debate has been going on and hopefully you know after the the latest dust up hopefully marvel um you know has it through your their 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 brains that you know monet is a woman of color and yeah and i as such and i'm super surprised they don't have that in the reference materials that they give to each new artist that's drawing monet 
that yeah. should be something that is front and center. And the way they did color correct in X-Core was so weird because they color corrected the entire pages. Like they, uh, all they did was like color scale it a different way. So it made everything else look off. So right. Monet looked right, but then everything else looked off. They didn't go in and actually just color correct the character. No, It was their quick fix because I'm sure they were so near printing that right. they had to be like, oh, all right, well, we're just going to drag this little slidey thing and make sure that she looks right, which I'm I mean, glad they the did. Yeah, not the best solution, but at least they did seek a solution. Right, exactly. Before we jump into House of M, one last question for you. Did you yeah. ever write in to a comic book? I did. I wrote in, oh my God, I'm about to get myself in trouble here. Um, I have only written one letter to a comic book. It was when I was probably, probably around 94. 94 95 somewhere in there um at the time i was i had monthly subscriptions in the mail uh to adjectiveless x-men and fantastic four uh because at the time i didn't understand uncanny x-men and mm -hmm. just x-men otherwise i probably would have had both x-men books yeah um but that was the point in in fantastic four um, where I'm just going to refer to it as uh, the infamous Invisible Woman costume. Uh, that are, are you familiar with the, uh, oh, the infamous Invisible Woman? I think Woman so. Costume? Where it's like absurd, absurd, like impractical. A her the four logo on her costume is a boob cutout. It's like a boob window. Yeah. Um, and she's like you know all of the exposed skin. Um, you know, she's basically Vampirella with a Fantastic Four logo on her, um, which, you know, the 90s was a hell of a time is about all I can say to that. But yeah. to a 10-year-old, I am going to say that as ridiculous as it is, I loved that. I love that costume. It is a nostalgic. It's kind of like the Generation X TV movie. You kind of had to be there. You kind of had to be <laughs> 10 years old uh, to appreciate it. Um, I know it's terrible. It's awful, but I loved it. And I actually, they, it didn't last very long. Um, and Mr. Fantastic was also dead at this point as well. Oh. Um, and so I wrote a letter to Marvel complaining that A, my favorite character, Mr. Fantastic was dead and B, they changed the Invisible Woman's costume, which I'm sure, I, I don't know how I defended, would have defended it at 10 years old. Um, but it never got printed. So, uh, you know, we can't relive that that gorgeous memory of me at 10 years old defending um, the Invisible Woman being a horrifically bad mother, I guess, by floating <laughs> around in that outfit. <laughs> That's too bad it wasn't printed. Um, and it makes me wonder, do they... do they have a file of all the letters they've ever gotten or do they just burn them or something? Can you imagine how many letters they would have had to have received from just like like 1963 to, you know, whenever the letters page stopped being like a physical thing in like 2003-ish? Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine. I would like to think that somewhere deep beneath the Marvel HQ uh, building is this vault of, of fan letters that we could go, you know, find young flinks owed to uh the four boob window but uh, <laughs> i would be surprised if it existed somewhere 
Yeah. Oh, I have yet to write to one and they don't really do like at the end of a few of the books now, they will say write into this email address, but they never really print anything anymore. And it was, I kind of like going through the letters page because there is the like the call out for the overweight woman joke. And there's a call out for like, why aren't you talking about the history that Mandrox and Siren have? And sort of Peter David's justification for that was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's like, there's good stuff there. And I think Peter David in particular has like, for better or for worse, he has always been a creator that interacts with the fans. And I say for better or for worse, because sometimes it is definitely for the worse. Uh, he can troll his own fans online sometimes. Oh. Um, he used to have his, I mean, he might still have it. I, it's been long since I've gone, but like around the time of this book, he was like, you could have, he had like the original, like ask me anything box on, on his website and fans would ask him questions. And he would like, if you ask the wrong kind of question, he would almost berate you a little bit. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, he's, and he's definitely very anti, anti spoiler. So never, never ask Peter David about spoilers. Um, I yeah. made that mistake actually when I met him at a comic book convention, <laughs> um, but I, he is, like I said, he's always been very good about engaging with the fans. And I think that more than like most comics of this era, he used the letter pages to effectively tease things, to effectively address like legit, legitimate criticisms that, that, that people had, such as like Monet's skin tone uh, and really sort of, you know, take that feedback to heart and, and enact things. Um, it, was, it was a more purposeful letters page, if you will. Sure. Okay. I'm going to take over with some questioning right now about House of M. So um, could you walk us through that large event? Because we're coming to the end of the main House of M stuff in X Factor with this issue. This sort of closes it out. It'll reverberate still there. I mean, we're going to get Quicksilver in a few issues, the letter pages or the letters page exposes that, that, you know, Quicksilver's coming and, oh, does he show up? Oh, um, yes. So it, there are still reverberations from the decimation and everything, but this was, these few issues to kick off the series happened during the main House of M stuff. So what did it even mean? What was House of M? Why does it matter to this as it's written right now? Let's start there. Yeah, so, you know, House of M was a huge storyline, a huge crossover for Marvel in the summer of of 2005. Essentially, um, the X-Men and the Avengers team up to to sort of um, stop Wanda Maximoff, the the Scarlet Witch, um, who has sort of lost, uh, lost a grip, her grip on reality, reshapes the world, um, and then at the end of this, it, you know, at the end of House of M, she basically rewrites, uses her powers to rewrite um, reality to where, you know, 99% of the, the mutant population uh, lost their powers. Um, many of them actually, you know, died because, you know, people flying mm-hmm. fell out of the sky. Um, you know, there was like a, a, a short story with Magma where she had, uh, she was like, 
using her molten lava powers in a volcano with another molten lava power based mutant and he lost his powers in the middle of the volcano and died like instantly so uh it was a major major status quo changing storyline for the mutants brought to you by the creative team of the avengers oh um, no yeah yeah and it's a brian michael bendis uh production who at the time you know since he has dabbled with the x-men at the time you know he was a primarily uh a avengers and spider-man writer so you know why kind of he got to determine what this gigantic new earth-shattering status quo for for the the mutant books was going to be you know i i really don't know um i honestly sometimes even question you know whether anyone from the x office had any say uh in this in this whatsoever um just sort of based on how um you know the main x books sort of responded to to house of m so um you know we're starting x factor here with a huge huge status quo shift um and it's really giving us one of the best reactions we saw to it um at, at that time and uh, we're seeing the street level stuff with x factor we're seeing mutant town we're seeing the two camps where some people are super happy that they're no longer mutants which i don't think a whole lot of that and correct me if i'm wrong is conveyed elsewhere like when you see mutants if they're unhappy to be a mutant they're usually a bad guy right and they're using their powers to do some pretty evil shit but you don't just get normal people who are like taking out the trash and being like i'm so glad i'm not a mutant anymore um so you have those people versus the other ones who um are they you see the reaction from humans to former mutants. Oh, you're not so high and mighty anymore. And the people who kept their powers, it's very minimal and there's not a whole lot they can do to help out the former mutants. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it just, I think you, 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 kind, of, you kind of said it, the, you know, what X Factor is, is doing here, you know, diving into how you know, how hard some of these former mutants are, are, are taking, um, you know, being depowered and like what that looks like at like a street level day-to-day -day kind of existence um, for them, you know, it, X Factor was kind of a little bit unique in that because you kind of, just for, for context, um, you know, House of M and, and all of this, these, these major, you know, status quo changes um, were happening at a time when Joss Whedon was was writing Astonishing X-Men and that was like the flagship X-Men book and and it was coming out at like a gruelingly slow pace. Mm. I mean, it took like, I almost want to say like four years for like 24 issues to come out. Wow. Um, and maybe not four years, but you know, it took a long damn time and all of the other X-Men books at the time were kind of just like piffle paffling about um, not wanting to step on, on Joss Whedon's toes um, and I mean, we, we did kind of get lots of like terrible miniseries out of Decimation, like Generation M, uh, the 198, but, but X Factor was really, you know, only one of two of the ongoing X-Men books that really dealt with the ramifications of M-Day in like a way that mattered. You know, we have, you know, what happened to Mutant Town, 
a look into like Richter's how you know Richter's emotional state re regarding being depowered. Um, like yeah, you mentioned, that... you know, we're gonna get we're gonna get Quicksilver. It's just it really it really dealt head on with some of those issues. The description from Richter like really drew me into his character. You know, like I was sort of already invested in him from Excalibur the, in the recent run. Yeah. But reading that, I was just like, oh, this is deep, and like, I'm I'm much more invested in Richter than I was even before because of like how he described losing his powers and losing that connection and what it meant to him and all that. Yeah, and like again, like none of the major X books at this point were were really addressing that because in like the big like oh my god this is this is a real thing this really changes the status quo like reveal in the house of m miniseries was iceman actually losing his powers him walking in like the ice melting off of him like oh i guess this is real guys and 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 adjectiveless x-men which was being written by peter milligan at the time which is a run i think universally X-Men fans you know we don't agree on much but universally I think Peter Milligan's run on X-Men is one that we're typically not interested in it immediately undid that moment and had Iceman it like revealed that Iceman just like he was so traumatized by everybody else losing their powers that he just sort of suppressed them but oh no it's okay guys I'm fine oh. so, like the contrast of like a main X-Men book addressing it that way versus opening with Richter about to commit suicide because he lost his powers just shows you kind of like the gap in how the, the writers and the X office wanted to, to deal with this because it, this was just something that just, I feel like landed in their laps from editorial and Brian Bendis, who was their golden child on Avengers at the time. And like just another example of that would be Layla Miller, um, who was a main character in House of M. She, so when Wanda rewrote the world, everybody forgot that she gave everybody what they wanted in that world. So they would forget um, like where they came from. And Layla Miller came along and her power is to what? To know no stuff. stuff. So she went around explaining to Cyclops, to Emma Frost, to Captain America. She woke everybody up, gave mm. like, let them know the truth. Um, and then, you know, she was, she was essentially a walking plot device. They gave her no character development whatsoever in House of M. And then her next appearance, you know, was immediately here where Peter David turned her as a plot device who simply was around to know stuff and had no other function and like turned that on its head and made her this really interesting and unique character. So I just, I feel like it's just so obvious, like just in these four issues, how much Peter David put into this when nobody else was really, you know, willing to. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I could tell you like what all of the other X books were doing at the time. I mean, Chris Claremont, I think that was his, I think that was his last leg of being a writer on Uncanny X-Men. And his response to Decimation was to write a story about the, the you know, Jean Grey's bloodline being wiped out by, uh, wiped out of existence, basically. And it's like, okay, that's something being decimated, but what the hell does that have to do with Decimation? Yeah. And I, yeah, it, it just, it, the only other X book at the time that, that really, you know, addressed 
what the world would be like if if 99% of mutants lost their powers was the teen focused new x-men uh student book um which you know its response to decimation was the X-Men's human villains realizing they were at their weakest and attacking the school and taking out a bunch of kids. And like, that was a really like raw story that again, it it tackled, you know, the scenarios of what if this actually happened, you know, what would, how would, how would depowered mutants react? How would the X-Men's villains react? It just holistically speaking, the X-Books at the time just didn't really want it didn't seem like they anyone but Peter David and the writers of New X-Men wanted to actually address this and to see it done so well it almost you know decimation was that was kind of a traumatizing event for X-Men fans we lost some really great characters to that you know Mm -hmm. for we're taking off the board for 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 years um and to see that happen you know kind of willy-nilly with only like the b-books caring about it uh, it was it was kind of hard, but we've moved past it now. And X Factor was, I mean, beyond worth all of that. Yeah, and I, I alluded to it. We're going to see reverberations through this title for a while, and um, the different reactions to Decimation, and some of the main players from House of M, like Quicksilver, is going to come in and have a pretty prominent part. Oh yeah, he, he sticks around. And just seeing how he is internalizing what happened with the decimation and how he feels what what his role was. Was he responsible? Was he not? And if he is feeling responsible, what does he do as an outcome to try to fix things? It's just we have some really good issues coming up um, that delve into, again, a lot of the nuances of characters that Peter David is taking his time exploring the different personalities and everything around them. I was reading ahead because I had a hard time putting it down and Quicksilver had just arrived to the point where I had gotten. Mm -hmm. So this makes me even more excited and probably means I will stay up much later than I should. Yeah, it's one of those books where you keep reading issues. You can't put them down. Yeah, the and the cliffhanger endings are, they get me every time. <laughs> like it's, I, go ahead. Like it's easier for me to be like, okay, I need to go to bed if I'm in the middle of an issue. Because if I end an issue, I'm like, I must know what's happening. So then I start the next one. Yeah, and like I was going to actually mention earlier when we were wrapping up discussion of, of issue four, you know, it ended on Siren being shot. Um, and this was a time, you know, this is getting released at a time where, where comics were really starting to be geared more towards um, trade paperback releases rather than like a serial monthly story. So usually it would be about like six issues of a, of a well-contained, you know, beginning, middle, end story. And Peter David clearly had no interest in that because this was probably, you know, volume one. These four issues are probably volume one of X Factor collected as a trade. And, and he closes it with, with I, I'm going to say probably the co-lead of the book at this point mm-hmm. uh, being, being shot. So there's there's a lot of tropes that he is you know avoiding in this series that that really make it stand out from from comics of its time and even comics now yeah and actually i'm reading the electronic version of the trade 
Um, it ends after six issues, but the rule holds for Peter David. Like it, he doesn't care about that format. He's not writing for the trade paperback publication. No. Um, it, it, if Marvel wants to take the first six issues and lump them together and sell them as a volume, they can, but it it is not a factor for him actually writing the series and plotting everything out. He's like, okay, well then they'll just mean that they're buying the second volume of the trade right. paperback, not based off of a story arc, but just the continuing story itself. Right. Which based off of his comments in the letters page that you called out was probably, probably his goal all along. Yeah. Ask your comic shop to reserve your copy. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our coverage. Is there anything else that you want to mention before we have you on next? Because you're going to pop on and drop knowledge throughout this whole journey that we're taking. And I know that I've slotted you for some um, story arcs or issues that you're really excited about, or I'm really excited to have you on to talk about. I would say the number one thing I regret that Dayspring and I did not get to cover um, during our, our Generations of X era uh, in depth was, was Messiah Complex, which is the first uh, major crossover that, that this uh, series ties into and is, in my opinion, the best X-Men crossover uh, of all time. And I'm talking, you know, oh. even up to including when you compared to things like Fall the Mutants, Mutant Massacre. I don't, I'm not gonna say it's better than Dark Phoenix, but it's much more, I, it's much more my speed. You know, it's it's the certainly the best of the modern X-Men crossovers as we know them. And I'm so excited to to come back and and talk to you guys about that. I have, you know, years worth of contained excitement for Messiah <laughs> Complex that I'm ready to spew out. Yeah, you and Dayspring are both going to be on for that episode. So it is going to be us learning from both of you, your different takes on Messiah Complex and about what the event even was. Yeah. So we're really excited to have you back. Um, and folks can find us, of course, on Instagram. We are at X Factor Files Podcast. Blinkman, thank you so much. People can find you if they really want to. Um, do you want to shout out your Insta handle or do you want to leave it a mystery, sort of like the remainder of X Factor investigations? <laughs> I mean, I think a good detective worth worth their 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 salt would be able to track down, uh, track me down on Instagram. But just in case, it's right. at Flinkman, at Flinkman. Um, and yeah, I, I'm engaging in all kinds of nerdy tomfoolery, posting some pet pics, you know, track me down, hit me up. Always happy to talk to, to X-Men fans. Great. Thank you so much, Flinkman. And we will talk to you soon about Messiah Complex. Yes, I can't wait. All right. 